0: This episode of the Single Track podcast is presented to you by Rabbit, maker of the best trail running apparel on the market. If you're looking for new kit and you want to support the podcast in the process, do us a solid and use code Singletrack20 at checkout. Long Run Archives number 12. I'm here with my frequent co-host, colleague, friend, Brett Hornig. Brett, I want to play an association game with you to get this conversation started. When I say Keto, Ecuador, what comes to mind? the
1: geographically most perfect running town in the world that's what comes to mind
0: we were talking about this a few days ago and you brought this up and i think it's fair to share with the rest of the audience how did this town in ecuador come on your radar go into more detail about what makes it potentially the greatest place to train ever so
1: i have a friend who i met here in ashland oregon and he went to go teach in Quito, Ecuador, and he gets there and he texts me. And he's like, "Dude, this this on paper is the perfect trail and ultra running town in the world because Ecuador it's on the equator, so the weather pretty much never changes. Usually on the equator it's very hot, but Quito's up in the mountains and it's up at ninety three hundred feet is the base of the city, and you can run from the city up to over sixteen thousand feet." And the coldest month of the year is actually June, where the highs are about 65 and the lows are about 50. The hottest month of the year is January. The highs are about 70 and the lows are about 55. So we've got about a five degree temperature difference between the hottest and coldest months. Um, I think there is a monsoon season, but for the most part, it just stays kind of in that pocket of great running weather all the time. Um, I'm talking like, just like, I don't know how much there is for trail running culture or built out trails in Quito, Ecuador, but on paper, that's the spot. And if I'm training for like hard rock, you know, I'm over in Quito right now. And on top of that, it sounds like ketones.
0: I love how generous you are with the organic ad drops. Is to to your knowledge, is there any infrastructure there for trail running or even road running? Like, do any professionals base out of there for any part of the? Like, they might go to Ethiopia and Kenya. Do they go to Ecuador to to train? I think for your classic road, you know, track marathon and under
1: ninety three hundred feet is too high, and you get too slow because you can't run fast. Like that's where Flagstaff is very ideal you know you live at 7000 feet mm. and you can drive down to Sedona at what is that 2 or 3000 feet and get in harder workouts of a your base your base floor is 9000 feet but for maybe training for some of these ultras that's not a bad thing um but to further answer your question i have no idea what they have in terms of running infrastructure there i haven't looked too much into into that uh sort of thing i just i just spend way too much time on google maps just poking around <laughs> I just finally went through it and like it's cool it is very cool looking
0: well i've got one race locked down on my calendar the tusher 70k in late july and then i've been toying with the idea of maybe possibly potentially signing up for run rabbit run both races spend quite a significant portion of the race above ten thousand feet so Maybe I have to clear my schedule post Western States coverage and go spend four weeks in in keto and see if it's everything it's chalked up to be. I fully support that. Just go get the most monstrous altitude training block.
1: Um, Didn't you have have something? Weren't you going to do Leadville?
0: I had Leadville on the calendar maybe two years ago, and I did one of those deferrals. And I thought that when you deferred, they would just let you into the next year's race automatically. And when it came time to sign up again, they were like, yeah, you got to pay whatever it is, $500 all over again. And I'm like, I'm not spending $1,000 on one race. And I just didn't, I didn't uh, pick up. So the you,
1: you lose your entry fee when you defer, but you don't lose your spot. So then if you go right. to the next year, you just have to repay your entry fee. You pay so double. it's like you're in line, but you didn't get in. You prepaid to get in the first time and now you got to pay to get in the second time. That's an interesting, that's an interesting, I don't, I haven't heard of another, of any other race that does it that way.
0: I was totally shocked because I have deferred and run other races before in my short ultra running career and they have never required me to pay twice. Like they always respected that first entry fee and so supply and demand. Yeah. I would have run it last year, but we went out to UTMB to crew our friends, Caleb Olson and Jimmy Elam and wouldn't trade it for anything, but yeah, they required it to pay up again. And I don't know, maybe we have a whole nother long run archives where we uncover the the deep, dark secrets of event registration. Yeah. I mean, again, it is, it is the wild West. You, you know, you're as a race director, you can do whatever the hell you want. But anyways, hopefully we have increased the name recognition here for Quito Ecuador and uh As early as this summer we start seeing training camps forming out there that would be hilarious if there's a single track effect thank you brett for not only introducing ketones to this endurance community which by the way we should talk about later on this episode but also potentially creating a whole movement of people heading south in the winter to Quito, ecuador
1: yeah i mean uh you know the professional skiers they chase winter all year round go over to south america and chile and argentina um to get in good snow maybe Maybe that becomes a thing with trail and ultra. And now, now, now that I'm thinking about it, I haven't looked, I want to look at some of the mountain link ups, like how hard of a race can you make out of Quito Ecuador, like UTMB Quito. (laughs) Like, can, can we make, can we make a race that's just in like way harder than hard rock, you know, just summit multiple 16,000 foot peaks. (laughs) Count me out. I'm not doing that. People leave the mountains of keto to come down to Hard Rock. Yeah. Can you imagine if you got to drop down an elevation to Hard Rock? That would be such a good advantage.
0: Awesome. Well, you're wearing a Lake Sonoma 50 cap. I know you were there this past weekend uh, joined by our mutual friends, uh, Leah Yingling and Mike McMonigal and your wife, Maddie, uh, Caleb and Morgan Olson. Caleb had a great day there, punched his ticket to Worlds. First question I want to ask you on this front is: uh, Are there any immediate observations that you had about the front end of the race and, and the pros that were there, and just all the implications for worlds? Like, where do you want to start with Lake Sonoma? Uh, before we start, other roommates
1: Hannah Allgood and her
0: husband Gil That's were right there as well. With That's us. right.
1: Don't want to leave them out. You know, we had a solid squad there. Um, they filled your shoes well. probably better if we're being honest, probably better. Um, yeah, it was so fun. Um, I know I really should put a a little K next to the zero on my Lake Sonoma 50 hat because I didn't make it all 50 miles. I only went 50 kilometers. So, uh, yeah, maybe I should write, write something on my hat there, but, uh, yeah, it was a super cool race. It was Horrendous the trail conditions just with how much rain that that area has gotten, and the amount of work that the race directors and volunteers had to do to get the course ready in time because so much of the course was flooded out, they couldn't even start prepping the course until a couple weeks ago. They built this like 50 yard long floating dock that went across one of the freaking Rivers. I at saw that mile like yeah. 14, which that's normally ankle deep water because I've run this course twice and the deepest it had ever been was shin deep. They said it was like 10 feet deep this year. And without that dock, the course was, you know, impassable and they would have had to run a road course or not a road course, an alternate rain course. And just, you know, that kind of those kind of volunteer hours, you you don't come by those, you know, every day, you know, just the, the community down there that the Healdsburg run company, uh, has, and just the Lake Sonoma 50 mile has built over time allows them to put on a world-class race. And I'm so glad that, you know, that it's back, you know, I would say they had a couple down years and there's been a lot of talk of like, will Lake Sonoma ever be where it was before. And this year it, Absolutely 100% was. And it ended up, you know, in our preview episode, we were talking about like, is this really the best course for the world mountain running team? And with how muddy and the increased technicality of the course. It actually ended up being what I would say a solid team selector. Um, I think we are sending a very, very good team because of how difficult the conditions were. And it did not just allow for, you know, the fast, turn your brain off kind of runner that normally wins Lake Sonoma to make the world's team. But instead, it was the person that had to be very smart, super gritty, manage these massive, muddy potholes. uh and and just overcome a ton of unique elements um and as a result you know great teams got
0: chosen i know that uh we've reached a point in this sport where a race like lake sonoma in terms of professional importance can be circumstantial like it hadn't been relevant for about four years then in this narrow world's qualifying window it got named as one of the races all of a sudden it became a barn burner again That could all change in the next two years because maybe the race directors do say, or not the race directors, but the the world's team management says, we're going to go out in these next two years. We're going to spend a little bit more time finding a race that as closely as possible matches up with the rigors, the demands of whatever the world's championship course is in 2025. Could this have just been like a flash in the pan, one and done, last two raw thing for Lake Sonoma? Or in your mind, is there any way for this to stay? in the consciousness of pro athletes for the next few years. I hope that they just, I just hope they
1: use this again and it just becomes routine. Um, People thrive off of routine. And if we keep switching things up all over the place, just to try and find like the perfect course uh, for the perfect world's team, I don't think, I don't think it's going to work as well. Like this race was able to hold, you know, five, 600 people. There's plenty of lodging. There was plenty of parking. It's not that difficult to crew, you know, mm. aside from being way out on the West coast, which is a problem for many East coast people. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a course that's easy or it's a race. That's easy to be very competitive. And ultimately now looking back on it, I'm not sure making the course more difficult actually matters that much. If the race is less competitive, you know, it could have been a 50 mile road race, but if all the best U S trail ultra runners were there, you make it really competitive. People show up and put their best foot forward. Chances are, you're going to get a pretty solid team. And because so many people ended up showing up to this race and racing, we got three really great men, three really great women who are now, going to be representing team USA for the, for the long course.
0: I think it was right after the black Canyon, hundred K you, me, Leah, Mike, we were all talking about how, what we just witnessed at that race felt like sort of a watershed moment where there was just really like professionalism in our sport on display with people like Anthony Castalis and Tom Evans and, um, Keely Henniger just putting on these amazing, uh, dialed, you know, start to finish performances did this race cuz you had the unique experience of being in the thick of it with the runners but then also watching things at the end i know did i did it just feel, right did, wait, i think hey media guy you're crushing it like you're doing the lord's work but did it feel like a continuation of that like talk about how the the front end of the race felt and then how it seemed when you observed it as well yeah 100% so one of the craziest things was
1: as soon as the race started it started on a 2 mile road climb to just let, you know, let the race spread out a little bit before dropping into the single track. What happened on both the men's and women's uh, fields, it did not spread out in two miles, a, a pack of over 20 men grouped up and a pack of over 20 women grouped up. And then it bottlenecked super bad for a few seconds when it went to the trail, but it was a pack. It was a big pack. And then it was just single file out on the trail and everyone was going the same speed, whether, you know, you were leading or in 20th and it took, you know, it took probably 15 miles for any sorts of like reasonable gaps to start opening up. And that's longer than what has traditionally happened in a lot of these races. Usually one or two people go out really hard, get an early break There's a couple chasers, a little bit of a gap, a couple more, but instead it was just steady the entire time. And then even when I was approaching the turnaround point and I got to see the leaders who had just turned around, come back down the course, there was, uh, Morgan Elliott was leading and then maybe one minute later, another, a pack of five and then within the next, within two minutes of the leader coming by, I think probably eight or 10 guys had come through. And then when I stopped at 50 K, I hung out there at the aid station for a while. And, you know, I think Aaron Clark had moved into the lead by that point, but there was still someone with her. And then like, Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eight, we're all within the next few minutes. And this is at the 50K mark. You know, it's uh similar to Black Canyon, it's just taking longer for the races to develop in terms of who's actually going to win. Because there's so they the competition is so deep that of course everyone can hang through 50k. You know, in an elite marathon, people hang through 18 miles. Um And that's what we're starting to see in trail races now. And then even by the end, it's like a great, something that I noticed uh, at the end of the day was the women's one through 10 spread was smaller than the men's. And Mm. I can't remember a race 50 miles or over where that has happened before. Um, And kind of, as we would said in the preview episode, the ladies race was stacked and stacked Yeah. And like so deep, you know, we were able to, we didn't even get to name everyone, but we probably could have gone like 30 names down the field. And as a result, the one through 10 spread was under an hour. And on the men's side, it was just a little bit over an hour. Um, so
0: just so competitive the other. Oh yeah. Good. Well, I was gonna say, I think, I think that what you said there about the race taking longer to develop, I think that's a really interesting insight. And it makes me wonder, like, if you apply that to hundred mile race like Western States, could we get to a point in this sport where people are so dialed and the coaching is so sophisticated and people are just so well prepared that there can be large packs of runners, 65, 75, 85 miles into the race and things really aren't certain until even like Roby point, for example, in the Western States course, like that's something that's interesting to me.
1: I mean, I could totally see scenarios where, I mean, can you imagine how shitty this would be if you're in a pack of 10 and you get to the river and it's a boat year and the boat can't hold that many people? (laughs) What do you do? I, in my lifetime, that scenario will happen because if you have, well, all you need is like six runners, six pacers. That's 12 people right there. I don't know how many those boats can hold, but hopefully if there's a big pack, they break some rules and just let people dangle or something off the sides because if you got screwed because you
0: missed the boat, um, that would be insane. We got to throw that out to the audience. That's a great trivia question in the history of Western States in the front end of the field. Cause I'm sure it gets pretty crowded when you get to the middle of the pack, back of the pack, but what has been the most crowded boat in the history of Western States at the front end of the race? Like top 20, top 10, top 20 male and female runners.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's not that many years to choose from. Cause I mean, they haven't even done boats in a while. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that would be an interesting one. But yeah, like we're, we are totally going to see, you know, races, you know, probably yeah, like Sonoma, Black Canyon, Western States where, you know, it, we could see the top 10 men and women come through Forest Hill, you know, within 15 minutes of each other, maybe even less, um, where it'll just be like nonstop and it will be complete mayhem and it will be awesome.
0: Did it seem to you like there were a variety of blow-ups in the racing? When I say a variety, I mean like you'll have somebody like a Morgan Elliott who took it out strong and did classically fade, but I felt like you also had people like Rich Lockwood who it seemed like they were contending for that podium for a while, might have dropped back a little bit but still managed to find themselves finishing 4th, 5th, 6th overall. Did it, did that seem to be apparent to you? There was
1: both. Like there is definitely some explosions in the race for sure. Um, And I think part of that was just due to people not knowing how difficult the course was going to be. That and the aid stations were all a little bit long. Um, The course was a little bit longer than everyone thought. So times and splits and all that stuff, like people are like adding it up and like, even by like the second aid station, it was a mile longer than everyone thought and not really far enough to really like mess up fueling. But mentally you're just like oh like drew one in 645 um i figured on the old course he's probably running 610 615 that's a that's a decent size difference um when you add on that much mud and additional just like course slop and water um so yeah it it the whole the whole day was just a uh, yeah. It was just interesting to see how everyone had to adjust their mindsets over the course of the race. Um, like even talking to Caleb who got second, he yeah. was in like the worst place right at around the 50 K mark. Um, which that, that the 50 K mark really is the crux of the course. Um, cause you go through all the biggest climbs twice. Like you have now just finished that. Like everyone looks like shit at the 50 K mark at that race. And he was no different. And fortunately Leo was there to tell him everybody looks horrible. You look, I mean, you look the same, so keep going. (laughs) And, you know, that's awesome. Slam, you know, throw some gels down his throat and send him on his way. But uh, he got told all the, all the correct things right there at that moment. Um, But yeah, it was, it was, I think it was still a race where there weren't as many blowups as, historically in the past because another good
0: sign yeah of like the sophistication of the sport yeah because you know
1: fading from third to six that's not blowing up not bad Um, no not at all um i think it just goes to show you know i don't know if it's the people are getting better at racing the racing smarter etc but the two people who won the race ran the two smartest races and that's a fact because drew out of i think the entire top 10 had the smallest positive split on the way back. He was only four minutes slower on the way back. And Aaron Clark was just barely under two minutes slower on the way back. Incredible. So they ran the two most even races and those were the two winners.
0: One la- one last comment I want to make on Lake Sonoma. It seemed to me that there has been a gap both pre-race and post-race between pro athlete excitement for this race and what it means and the media coverage out there like just talking with our friends and then even just athletes that have you know submitted applications for worlds and that were in this race a lot of them were putting this race and the world championship team on the same pedestal as western states and utmb and all these other marquee things that you try to get into and train for and there's commensurate media coverage for those things. It didn't seem like this was a focus point for the media, which is which is interesting to me. Yeah. I agree with
1: that. The the marketing and media around this race, I would still say was still very much grassroots. You know, you had the local run shop putting out tons of their own content about the course and people. And there was a little bit on Instagram from like the US mountain running team, but that was kind of about it and you're right for a race this competitive and where you know when there are scenarios where the winner of the race is now not going to run western states and is now going to run worlds that's a huge deal i mean how many people have turned down western states to run at the world championships I don't, yeah. not too many so well just drew true did yeah i mean who else like in the history of Worlds, I mean, is that a pretty much about it? Because most people on the Worlds teams aren't running Western states. Like, most people don't have the choice to run both. Like, um, you know, Adam Peterman is going – he chose Western states. Like, yep. Leah is choosing Western states. Drew chose Worlds, but I forget who said it, but they had a good point of, do you think Drew has had an easier choice – Picking worlds over Western states this year because Drew has probably gotten the most out of himself at Western states? It's a great question. He's had two great races at Western states and been like totally trashed, didn't make any big mistakes. How much better could he, you know, do at Western states versus switching it up and now doing something like worlds, where I know a big draw for him is. D- the competition and some of the, you know, rumored people that might show up at Worlds, even some mm-hmm. of the like US applicants.
0: This episode is also brought to you by HVMN, which are my choice for exogenous ketones. I was introduced to exogenous ketones at the Havelina 100 back in the fall of 2022. And after some testing, they quickly became a part of my daily routine to support energy and focus. And I've even started using them in the middle of long runs to support endurance and recovery in 2023. My nutrition plan will be both high carb and high ketone. And for the latter, HVMN will be my product of choice. So if you're interested in trying them out yourself, use code singletrack 20 at checkout on their website for 20% off your next order. One more, uh, interesting note, uh, ketone IQ, which is HVMN's flagship product can be found in local sprouts stores nationwide starting April 1st. You put this on my radar earlier today, uh, and this is breaking news on the on the Trail Runner magazine website. Outside and UTMB are partnering on their World Series event lineup. Fans will get video content, race previews, recaps, and quote unquote first in class live streaming for 11 races on the UTMB circuit in 2023. You put this on my radar. I think it's cool news. What what are your initial thoughts?
1: Well, this is on your radar because uh my Mike Shit in the Woods McMahonigal put it on my radar. He's got a <laughs> he's got a finger on the pulse. Um he does. You know, looking at their their live stream schedule, it's actually not very different from last year. They're just packaging it up as a a thing partnered by, you know, Trail Runner or outside Meg. So I'm curious what outside Meg is going to bring to the table. Is it simply just money and a different website to host their live streams on? You know, I'm looking at their schedule right now and it's mostly European races. Um, The one, the big question mark for me is the Canyons endurance runs by UTMB. How are they going to, what is their live stream for that going to be like? Because most of that course has like horrible cell
0: service or none at all. My bet in not knowing any of the details, my bet is that it makes sense for UTMB because they'll get additional distribution through all of Outsides channels. They'll get additional promotion through Outsides channels and Outside has all sorts of different athletes. I'm sure they'll try to find a way to like promote it to their cyclists and, their kayakers and their climbers and anybody that is even like adjacent to some degree to the sport. So there'll be that. My question is, will, cause this is going to be through outside watch. This whole production used to be free for viewers. Yes. Maybe you get this whole new audience through outside, but are you going to have to pay? Is this going to be a paywalled experience? That's my question. Right now it says it's going, they're all going to be free.
1: Interesting. So maybe it's just a one year pilot or maybe it will be free. What I'm, just thought of now is this might actually be an interesting growth opportunity for UTMB as a race um, to get the UTMB series on the minds of people who are outdoor enthusiasts, but not necessarily ultra runners because there are a lot of people subscribed to outside plus. So they might, this, this might be a good growth tactic for UTMB in terms of increasing participation at their races, because some of these people might now only think that the only trail races in the world are put on by utmb like there, there will be a good amount of people that will only race within the utmb ecosystem because they heard about utmb and all the races they put on because of outside magazine good or bad right yep good or bad yep growing the sport but we're only growing it within one channel
0: have you ever seen the hbo show silicon valley oh yeah love it I think it's in the first season. Do you remember when they're at that party and Kid Rock is playing? Oh, yeah. And he's like totally rocking out. Like he's just finishing up a song, like, you know, smashes his guitar and then the camera pans out and there's nobody in the audience. Yeah,
1: they're not paying attention at all.
0: No no one's paying attention. So here's the reason I bring that example up. By the way, great show. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Incredible show. Reason I bring it up is um, I think it's a good thing, this partnership. And my understanding also is UTMB is going to be retaining all of the media talent that they had before this partnership came to be. Like It'll be the same announcers, same commentators, probably the same people doing interviews and stuff. But I bring up the Kid Rock example because I feel like they're going to organize all of these pre-race interviews and all these preview shows like the day before the event. And as you and I both know, having gone to these things, Mm -hmm. nobody ever shows up in the audience to those athlete panels. They're totally empty. If anything, it's like their parents and partners and maybe like some marketing people from the companies. It's totally empty. Yeah. And then from a distribution standpoint, if you're doing a preview episode, like the day before the event, that's not on demand. You're forcing fans to like consume it right there in the moment and then tune in the next day. I just don't see how you're going to build an audience around all of that supporting content. So that's my, as a fan and fellow media person, that's my only critique there. And that's why I use that. Silicon Valley example that I hope lands because it's a hilarious moment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I am here. So their first live event is this weekend at the 100 miles of Istria, which I know. I mean, I I know it's a cool course, but I have yet to come across like Instagram has not pushed any elite fields, preview articles, etc. from outside mag or trail runner mag to my eyeballs. Um, I don't know who's racing or what's on the line there. So those storylines don't exist to me, you know, and like, am I really supposed to go out and like actively seek them? Shouldn't they just be blasted in front of my face? So I'll give them a pass for the hundred miles of Istria because they just made this announcement, the races this weekend, but then they've got a couple weeks to do it for canyons. So like, let's see some early, early building in terms of interviews,
0: published elite fields, et cetera. hundred percent. Yeah. That all of that demand generation generating fan interest, it has to happen multiple days, multiple weeks out. I stand by the comment that they need to create more of a gap between all the preview content and the race. It makes no sense to do it, you know, the day before that's, that's a huge lost opportunity. For sure. Brett, I have another question. All right, are we a pro gambling trail running media outlet here at Single Track? I love, I love betting on sports.
1: Um, I just don't know how it works. I can't. I haven't figured out a good way of how it works in trail uh, yet because they they've done it in track. Um, I've bet on the Olympic trials. I've bet on the Olympics. I've bet on the World Championships. I've lost money every single time, but it 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 brought up my investment in the race to a level that m- normally didn't exist. You know, like so and so in the five k has like ten thousand to one underdog odds. Of course, I'm going to put fifteen bucks on them, and then of course I'm going to be rooting for someone that I've never rooted for before because they have a chance to make me a little bit of money. And like it's yeah, it's. Gambling is supposed to be for fun. You're not supposed to gamble with the hopes of actually making... It should not replace your job. It's supposed to be for entertainment purposes only, just like all the casinos say. I am for that. Gambling should just be fun. It's like going to the arcade to play video games. I'm not hoping that a talent scout's going to come out and like be like, oh, you're really good at video games. You should play video games professionally and make money off this. No, it's for entertainment. That's how I think betting on sports should be it should be for entertainment and i struggle to figure out yet how to do it in trail because there's so few data points for the bookies to make odds like i feel like they how could they possibly know and create odds better than like you or i
0: like in theory yeah. there
1: should be a small handful of people that could make a ton of money off betting on trail racing.
0: You know who I think would be perfect for this job, like DraftKings should hire him is Aid Station Fireball. He could be their odds maker. Oh,
1: 100%. Yeah. and like <laughs> I have no idea what that even means to make o- odds for a runner, but um I think I I can't even think of any races where like DraftKings could have a a set of odds that people could actually play on. Um, like maybe Western states, like it's consistent enough each year where you get a similar lem- level of like talent and depth each year. Like maybe you could do stuff off Western states. Maybe UTMB, and then the only other one that I feel like could work is Sierra all, but. I just almost feel, I feel like it's not quite big enough yet, um, and I could see that the model that gets adopted to like the marathon majors when that happens because you know we're talking about this because betting almost got approved for the Boston Marathon this yes. coming Monday, and yes. I think when that gets approved, whatever model that is could be taken in a similar way to trail and ultra
0: to your point, we would have to have extremely dynamic in race betting where odds and circumstances reset based on new information that the odds makers can use. Like I was trying to brainstorm a few different categories that we could bet on and have fun with. One would be how long an athlete stays in a particular aid station and gets out who's leading at various points of the race. You could even get into fashion and gear. Like what gear are they using on race day? Like, uh, you know, From within their sponsors, like what shoes are they going to wear for the race? But I think Ultra Running, I'm not going to say it's perfect for it, but I think that there's potential because there's so many parts of the event and the experience that we could theoretically bet on. And um, I think for you and for you and me, and and for Leah and anybody else that's in the media space, I was thinking about it more. Think about every single pre race interview we do, every single pre race hype episode we do there is now so much more riding on that content because people will start to use it to inform who they bet on and the decisions they make and stuff like that so and now um, we're all come
1: we are ineligible to place these bets because we have potential insider information so totally so now i i quit as a as a media person. So that way I can go bet on people, but <laughs> the types of bets that I was thinking of for like something like Western States were completely different than the ones that you were made. You made like, it's I was thinking like, you know, like the easy ones that like as a bookie, I would consider taking who comes through forest hill first or over unders for time for forest hill. Like who hits forest hill and in what time you get over under for that. Same with the winners um, of the race, you know, who who wins the race? Like that's it. those are like I feel like easy intro bets to make over unders. The other one would be guys who makes it to the top of the escarpment first. Yes, that's a great that's a great that's a great uh, one. DraftKings bet, and then there's also the scenario of like your one day one day fantasy league type thing for um, a race like Western States. You know, we have fantasy free trail where it's just pick your pick your top five, but like if you were in a league, like say there was 10 of us and we did a snake draft and we had to pick our teams of five or three men, three women, and you had to pick your teams and it was a snake draft and everyone was organized by some sort of ranking, whether it's ITRA or UTMB. And then there was opportunities for them to get points over the course of the entire day. Then you could win by the end and that would be a fun and engaging way to watch the race. And it could absolutely be a thing where DraftKings is the host for that. And you have to pay, you know, $5 to start the league or something like that.
0: I'm trying to think of all the people, because you and I are probably, if we're not for betting, we're at least hospitable to the idea in our sport. But for anybody that's out there in the audience listening and they're like, oh, I think this is a terrible idea. I think corruption is inevitable. I think athletes will get bought off. I think events will, turn to the dark side all these kind of things do you buy into any of those potential pitfalls of this so there's always the talk of like well there's corruption there's no money
1: in trail running it would be so easy to just pay someone to throw their race how come i can bet on college basketball then like how come i can go to vegas and bet on march madness where these college kids don't make any money and they're not throwing these games why doesn't it happen then for collegiate sports, which I can bet on? There's no money and that. It's amateur.
0: I think one answer to that, and it's, it's one of many answers, I think that because there's betting in those sports, more money has flowed into the sport, and it's allowed those athletes to be compensated at a relatively proper rate so that they don't have to worry about corruption because they've been taken care of to some extent.
1: I mean, aren't they like not- Like in the
0: NBA, like in the NFL. Yeah, but like in college, you're not supposed to be getting paid. That's changed with the NIL stuff.
1: Yeah, but that's name, image, likeness. That should have nothing to do with their performance. So that, like, I don't think as many people have NILs as as one. Would I think it's believe, but that's not yeah, to the, say the NIL. Yeah, I don't think that there's people, <laughs> people in college basketball are absolutely making money under the table. Like that's just how Division One college sports works. Um, yeah, I'm not going any further on that because that's all speculation and, and rumors. I don't know anything. I was not a division one athlete. I did
0: not make any money competing in college. If I think about it right now, like the content we're making here, this has a financial impact in the sense that we will encourage people to use discount codes for products and, you know, they'll use ketones, they'll use rabbit gear, they'll use Morton nutrition, whatever with betting, it's, it's still wild to me that we could be doing episodes where people are tuning in because it has a financial impact on their engagement with the sport. That to me is wild. Like they're going to be tuning in and they're going to be so like keen to hear how Adam Peterman's training went for Western States because they have a hundred dollars riding on that race. That's wild to me. Yeah. Is, does that bring up any like legal ramifications for us?
1: If we don't do our job correctly or is that just we're good because the other per that person didn't have to listen to us talk? I
0: think we're free of any uh I forget what the legal term is called, but I think we're free of any blame or attribution. Because like we didn't scenario. tell that we're not liable. We're not liable. We didn't
1: tell that person to bet a hundred dollars on Adam Peterman. We just said, Oh yeah, Adam, it seems like you're really fit. And he was like, Yeah, I am really fit. I've been running seven hundred miles a week.
0: We're like oh shit i mean i was just listening to the bill simmons podcast before this and that that show is sponsored by fan duel and he has to read all the disclosures around betting and then he has to read the disclosures around like if you have a gambling problem call this number in this state does that for like three minutes and then i do think people actually turn to that show for information on lines and how players are feeling in in various games and what's expected of them in mm. the weeks to come and in the playoffs and stuff. So, but it doesn't have that. I don't when, when I listen to that show, I don't feel like what they're saying they should be liable for in terms of the outcomes of my bets.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's fair. I think, I think there's a correct way for, for us to do this when it does in fact happen. Um, and I think there's a chance that, you know, opening up small wagers oh. for, these sports. That's the other thing. There are like payout caps in lots of sports betting. Like, you know, I can't win ten million dollars off of most sports bets. Like there are maxes for that. And like you could keep them relatively small in a small sport like trail running. So that way it reduces the chance of corruption and things like that. Um, but I guess where I was going with that is This could open up the chance to get new eyes on the sport, new fans of the sport. More people watching the sport means more growth, more money that trickles down. And yes, that would trickle
0: down to the athletes. Do you think that there's anything negative about the reason that the reason why new fans are coming into the sport? Like, if they came to the sport, because gambling became an option, does that make them like impure in any sense? Like, Are there any purists out there that are going to be like, they're coming here for the wrong reasons and they're going to put this stain on the sport and it's going to, yeah. What do, what do you think about that whole slippery slope? I don't know if it's so much that person, but it could bring in the wrong
1: brands with the, I mean, with wrong brands with the right amount of money can do bad things for a sport. Are there any off the top of your head? There was so much corruption in the in the cycling world in the '90s and 2000s. Um, was that all sponsor brands being like, "Yes, we'll throw money towards better doctors, so that way our team can win." And then maybe if our team's winning, then some sort of betting money comes back on it. I don't know how that could work, but yeah, you you and like does that then. You know, say a company that knows nothing about trail running just is like, oh, yeah, we'll throw a billion dollars towards this sport and we're going to do it
0: this way. And they just ruin it. What are the ways they ruin it, in your opinion? What are the unintended byproducts of that? So I don't I wouldn't say that the Diamond League has
1: ruined track and field, but they have a lot of power over who gets to compete and what events are contested and like when the events are where they are. A lot of up and comers don't get opportunities because there's a lot of politics to get into a diamond league meet. There's only so many lanes Mm -hmm. and with appearance fees and just resumes of athletes with historically good races, they are going to get the lanes first. Their agents are going to lobby for them to get those lanes first. So if you're running really fast, but say you haven't competed really on a global scale, it might take one or two years for you to finally get into the diamond leagues. What if something like that happened with like a quote unquote, like race circuit that came to existence here? You know, it might just be the same people doing the same things year after year, but there might actually be better people not in it because they're just not getting those opportunities.
0: I also want to shout out my good friends at Trails and Tarmac who remind you that your dreams are not that far away. Their coaching team led by the one and only Brett Hornig can take your running to the next level. Personally, I have worked with these folks for over six years on road and trail projects, and I can tell you it's gonna feel really good when you do something in this sport that you didn't know you could do. So head over to trailsandtarmac.com. This is all linked in the show notes as well. And when you mention the single track podcast in the form fill out there, you will receive a hundred and twenty dollars off your first three months of coaching. With that, let's get back to the show. That point right there about start lines and fields and competition. I want to, this is the perfect segue and I want to touch on it in this, uh, in this topic. There was a Sidious Mag interview with between Kyle Merber and Marvin Bracey, who's this hundred meter star in the track and field scene. And part of it is about his career and, and you know what he's doing right now, but a significant portion of it that attracted interest was their discussion about the debate between what you just mentioned, appearance fees versus prize money as a part of compensation, public versus private contracts, and what the composition of these races should look like. Should they be the current stars of the sport? Should they be the most popular people in the sport? Or should there be a lane for these up-and-comers that otherwise only have a chance to prove themselves at like the Olympics and at U.S. and World Championships uh, be in there as well? There are so many places we could dive in. Where do you want to start there? I love the... Uh, one For one, we should definitely link to that
1: interview because it's a fantastic read. It's great. Um, I love the appearance fee versus prize money debate. Let's do it. So right now in the sport of track and field, as well as road racing, we'll just go we'll pro, primarily focus on track because that's what Marvin did there. There's more money in appearance fees to the very top athletes then there are actually prize money for winning the race that incentivizes them that then allows for the meets with the biggest amount of money to build out or buy their most competitive fields. And they don't necessarily buy the most competitive fields. They buy the most popular fields to you know get people in seats at the stadiums. Marvin argues that you would get as good or better competition. If you didn't have that money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars going towards these appearance fees and instead putting them towards the podiums or, you know, through however many places of the race, because if you're, if someone's just getting paid a hundred grand to go show up to the race, there's not a lot of incentive for them to race. Well, I mean, sure. There's an ego part of it where if you're going to go and show up, you don't want to lose. Um, But then if another race is like, well, we'll give you a hundred or a hundred thousand dollars to go here. Now you're just like splitting the competition. But if there is a meet that like, if that didn't exist and you wanted to get paid and the way for that to happen was for you to go win the race, there will be a lot of people wanting to line up and win these races. I think there needs to be more reason for people to want to race each other than for the meets saying, I, I want you to race here. The athletes need to be saying, I want to race there and that's why i think prize money is better than appearance fees time it's a
0: (laughs) no i i think i i think i mostly agree with what you said there one thing i'll add to to your point about the issue with appearance fees and he talks about it in the interview how it creates an even further gap between what he calls the top of the sport and the top-ish part of the sport where he has been most of his career. like They're using those appearance fees to further invest in the best doctors, the best treatment, the best hotels, rest, coaches, gear, lifestyle, investments, everything, you name it. And here's Marvin, who is like not that far off the very top of the sport if he's not there already, and there's just a world of difference between them, and he's at a severe competitive disadvantage. So not only... Um, do mm-hmm. your points make sense, but there's also just this further gulf where it's extra, you know, if you, if you get over it, great, but it's very hard to get into that select group of athletes. It's just further. It's, it's a competitive disadvantage.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's like the top three or four athletes in each event are pretty much guaranteed that they will get paid a lot at any meet they decide to go to, because there will be that incentive there for them to just go. Whereas everyone else might be like knocking at the door of performances that good, but they are not going to get that opportunity because now all those top lanes are getting filled by the same people over and over. Um, And yeah, I don't think that creates as much opportunity for the sport to grow in terms of competitiveness. Um, Kind of going back to what we said last week, it's like, do you want to see one person just completely dominate everything or not really know who's going to win each time? And track is kind of in a neither mode where it's like the same four people are probably going to win the race every single time, but it's not one person right now who's just breaking world records and is significantly better than everyone. It's like we've got four people who are all pretty good, but then that's there's not, you know, a dozen others that could win it because that's where most of the funding in the sport is going. How does that equate to trail running? Like I don't know if it does in a way right now, but these are growing pains that trail running could avoid.
0: We do have some degree of appearance fees in the sport right now, correct? Like, I I bet if we asked Anton Krupicka, have you ever been paid to show up at an event or been offered payment? I'm sure he would say yes. I'm sure Courtney has been on. This is all unconfirmed, by the way, and I've never asked them. But I would just assume that for some of the top people in the sport, they have been at least offered appearance fees.
1: Yeah, I would love to know if anyone has been offered more than just a free entry and like... Maybe lodging to go to one of these races. Um, you know, like has anyone, like has UTMB, is did UTMB pay anyone ten thousand dollars to show up to UTMB to race, um, or like did does Sierra Zanal pay Killian money to show up every year? I don't. I don't know the answer to that, but I would love to know. I'm curious. Like, are there actually secret appearance fees in some of these trail races, I don't know. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, or yeah, or will, will that be a thing? Or will the sport get so big and the tippy top of the sport gets so popular that they do get to play the game of like, well, if you want me to come to this race, my my fee is $12,000.
0: Well, Kyle Merber in the interview makes a couple interesting comments as well because he, he identifies... And I think this has existed across the running sphere but there's always been this tension between what is fair from a competitive standpoint and what's interesting to the fan and maybe they're not mutually exclusive but he he does create that dichotomy and i think when marvin starts talking about you know oh, uh, like do we need to keep seeing the same people at every race should we allow for like a ladder for these lower tier athletes to come up and prove themselves kyle suggests the idea of a major leagues and a minor leagues of track Did you buy that at all? What were your thoughts there? Yeah. So
1: that's kind of like, like the diamond league circuit is the major league. And then the minor league is just a whole bunch of like independent track meets. There is no minor league circuit really. Like there's been attempts, like there's like the American track league. There's the sound running series. There's a handful of like early season invitationals. There's a whole bunch of meets in Europe that are just kind of like one-offs, not necessarily part of a circuit. All of those together make for the minor league, but it is so hard to keep track of that. You pretty much only hear about the results after they happen. And that makes it really difficult for people to come up into the diamond leagues then, because that also means pushing someone out of the diamond leagues. And relegation. It doesn't happen too often where like someone gets a new lane in the diamond leagues, like, you know, one person, like we're going deep into track right now, but one person, one person who actually did make that happen last year was, uh, Josette Norris. She now runs for the, uh, the on athletic club, but she didn't have like the greatest year leading up to USAs, but then like ran a couple good races that got her a spot on the 1500 field of, one of the later diamond leagues. And then she started running really well. She had a good race there and they were like, Oh, okay. You'll get invited to the next one. Has a good race there. Okay. We'll invite you to the next one. Rode this second half of the season of diamond leagues because she got one opportunity to run one of the smaller diamond leagues, but then beat a whole bunch of people and then was able to race well enough to stay in it all the way to the Diamond League final, where I think she was like fourth or fifth in the 1500. So that's like one of the very few scenarios where I can think of where like didn't make the US team, didn't even run that well at USA's, tried to put it together later on in the season and then just like caught fire for the second half. And because of that momentum now is pretty much guaranteed to get into whatever Diamond League meet she wants for this year because it's like now she's in.
0: You just made me think one of the advantages of our sport, we don't have a limited number of lanes. I mean, some races are capped, but it's not by design. It's typically because of permits. We, If we wanted to create these professional only races in our sport, and I know I'm going off on a tangent now, but if we wanted to create these professional only environments for racing and, and, and fans to watch, we wouldn't have to deal with some of the same issues that track has to deal with in terms of uh, competing for a limited number of spots on the start line. Yeah,
1: I see there's pros and cons to like track versus trail in terms of building the fields, building a league, having a circuit, et cetera. I see that working in track so much better than trail because I mean, some people will disagree. Like, all tracks are the same. You know, you race around the world on all these different tracks, but at the end of the day, they're eight or nine lanes. They're made of rubber. They're 400 meters. They're the same. If you throw, if you make an equivalent trail running circuit or like a league and it doesn't change that much, like now all the best runners in the world are just stuck running on the same X number of courses per year, which that's the other thing is like, you can race way more 1500s in one season than you can, you know, hundred K to hundred mile, uh, races. So then you end up kind of pigeonholing yourself into these same three events every year. Whereas, and like, I mean, one of the big reasons why I run trails so I can go explore different bits of the world, you know, minimally with aid stations. It's like, I don't necessarily, I don't do, I've done way more new races than I have races again. Um, And that would kill the, and there's a lot of professional trail runners who race that way. Like, yeah, they seek out competitive races, but they also want to just go and explore amazing areas. And if you get stuck in a league, maybe you make more money, but it becomes much more commercialized um, in terms of like your own race calendar. So like, that's where I think that's where it kind of hurts as a trail As a trail runner, um, it's it's hard to build out a circuit like that. Where I think it could work, though, is sub ultra. Yes, agreed. Like there could be a scenario where there's a a, like a professional sub ultra league, and they run on a circuit, and then you know there's just a handful of hundred milers that are their own own independent like majors because there's like four tennis majors uh, throughout the year. Like, what if there was just a couple of like. Like you have a kind of like what we have now, except we could, it could just be a little more organized where it's like, you have your Western States, you have your UTMB, maybe there's one or two others. And they're like, just always going to be the most competitive hundred milers of the year. But like, it's not necessarily a circuit, you know, you might not get the same people lining up on all four of them, but they're going to be very competitive each year in their own right. Like, what if that's just how it works for the various trail running uh, events
0: just picking a random number here, the 25K mountain trail distance, realistically, in your mind, how many times could an elite pro trail runner race that distance in a calendar year and not totally destroy themselves? Yeah, that's tough. Could they do once a month? Could they do once a month, do you think?
1: You Probably, yeah. But like, then you sacrifice getting better. Like if I, if I do one once a month and I get, you know, ninth place on that first one chances are I'm getting ninth place every single one of them. Cause I don't have enough time between the races to actually get better. Um, unless, unless, you know, I start out that first one in pretty bad shape and I kind of race my way into shape. Um, it's hard to make those kinds of adjustments and tweaks. Cause like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to hold top fitness for long races for a long time. Like that's why you just don't see people, running road marathons more than twice or maybe three times a year because you kind of get to peak for the big race like the long the longer the race the 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 smaller the peak or the smaller the actual peak for like 1500 you can kind of ride that fitness wave for a long time you get to work on tactics and it's like yeah like yo i ran 335 you know seven times this year like i don't know how many times i get to do that for a 25k
0: now that I'm thinking about it, this is actually where I see doping making a lot of sense, not making a lot of sense in terms of like, it's a good idea, but making a lot of sense for the athletes to survive a massive season. advantage, massive advantage. Like you're going to want to dope. You're going to want to take EPO. Your recovery necessarily be for, so for, much recovery, for recovery purposes. Yeah.
1: I mean, and then because of that, you'd run faster, but
0: yeah, if there is,
1: if I needed to say there's like 10 race season and I have to participate in six. Yep. And and the goal is you participate in six. That way you qualify for the final. You know, all of those, that means every single person who's racing the final has done a minimum six races that season. Everyone's going in tired who goes in the least tired. That's, that's a problem. I mean, so now for this league to work, you need to have very top notch, like random drug testing, which absolutely can exist with a, a successful league. You know, and you know that's in theory where like a players' union would come in because doping's not healthy for you um, it can be very dangerous so if a league is not looking out for the safety of the athletes in that league and not having good doping control, they're bringing you know inherent risk to the athletes so there should be very strict anti-doping procedures in a league like this for those exact reasons, because if the only way for you to win is to try and take as much secret EPO as possible, that's that's dangerous.
0: One more point about this article, then we can move on. Marvin makes the case for uh, making all contracts public versus the status quo of them all being private. Reasons being A, he thinks it would immediately make contract sizes bigger. That public knowledge about everyone's circumstances would, you know, force these brands effectively to to increase rates. B, he thinks it would make the sport more exciting for athletes because if they knew the discrepancies, interesting rivalries would form. And then C, he thinks that it would be interesting for fans because uh, they would just want to see how these athletes perform off of these new contracts, like the pressure and stuff. Do you agree with Marvin or do you have any different viewpoints there? I agree with
1: all of that. And I know I've said it before too, with contracts being public and you know how it would you know, the brands say that it's to protect the athletes. It's to protect the brands from having to spend more money on the athletes. And the athletes deserve a little bit more than that. And I like as a media person in the sport. Would love to be able to talk about. Oh, so and so is in their contract year. They're going to be a free agent at the end of the year. You know, if they do these races, like, you know, oh, it looks like they're doing these races because these are races that Solomon puts on and they're coming from Hoka. I wonder if they're making an attempt to like get Solomon's attention or, you know, maybe they're trying to bid themselves up to get a bigger contract for a renewal with Hoka. um, Those sorts of scenarios would be so fun to talk about. The other thing that I think Marvin talked about in this interview was if we knew what kind of like bonuses were on the line for some of these athletes. Like, You hear about it. It doesn't get talked about in the NFL enough, but there's always been scenarios where it's like, oh, Patrick Mahomes was just dishing it out to Travis Kelsey late in the season (laughs) because Kelsey needed to get 75 catches and then he would get a half a million dollar bonus. Yep. And like Mahomes was like, Oh yeah, I'll do you a solid there. You'll just get a whole bunch of dump like shovel passes so we can get you over that number. Um, I love hearing about those sorts of things where it's like, Oh, if, if Hayden Hawks finishes, you know, this race and then ends up being ranked in the, you know, end of season you Roy, he will get a $5,000 bonus, you know, something like that. Like, I love talking about things like that.
0: And it it will also contextualize every single race decision too. Like, oh, end of the year, you know, so-and-so just hopped into JFK last minute because the rest of their season hasn't been so great. And they need that big race result at a competitive race to bring to the negotiating table in December for a renewal or a new brand.
1: Yeah. And these athletes are already doing this. We just don't get to talk about it because we don't know they're doing it. In hindsight, then you can be like, "Oh yeah, I can see why they did this and this." Um, but it's it's hard to see in real time, and I would love for that kind of transparency to be able to talk about it because yeah, then we just get to have a little bit more like publicity around more than just the results after they happen. We the more reasons we can talk about why someone should tune in to watch this race, the better.
0: We were supposed to cover this topic last long run archives. We ran out of time, but I actually think I'm glad we saved it because it's perfect for right here. The question is, do you think having an agent as a professional runner in this sport is worthwhile in any circumstances, certain circumstances or no circumstances? What's your take there? I think right now for the most part. Well, okay. So it's tough. You can
1: look at this question a couple different ways one from the viewpoint of the athlete and one from the viewpoint of the agent. Um, looking at it from the viewpoint of the agent, it's not worth my time to represent trail runners because if I make 10% of whatever contract I help them negotiate and we're talking $15,000 to $30,000 contracts, I need to represent a lot of trail runners to make a living And the amount of effort that would go into negotiating that contract would be very similar to me just staying in the cycling world or freaking the football, baseball world and representing those athletes because the amount of work to negotiate those contracts are not all that different, but the payouts are way bigger. So from an agent standpoint, I think we, and, and it's kind of like a chicken or the egg scenario. Like these agents would probably be like, Oh yeah, I would represent trail runners if their contracts had any chance of being big enough. And right now they don't, you know, unless you're one of like five or six people in the sport and maybe they have agents. Um, maybe they don't, I don't, I actually don't even know, but for the most part, it's just not worth it for an agent to hop into our sport because, the money's just out there. And then from an athlete standpoint, do I need t- an agent to take a big cut of everything that I, I win for a whole bunch of, well, for not that much money already. It's like, do I need to get, you know, what maybe I could negotiate 20,000 for myself, but then with an agent, he negotiates it up to 25 or thirty. But then with the amount that gets taken off the top and like bonuses that get taken off the top, et cetera, et cetera, I'm kind of back to where I was if I just advocated for myself. And I will say that's the hardest part is as an athlete knowing how to advocate for yourself and knowing what kind of numbers to talk about and like what should I even be asking for? Those sorts of things. So that's where it that's where we're in this weird gray zone of athletes shouldn't have to be able to advocate for themselves, but they have to. And then as a result, yeah. yeah, as a result, the contracts aren't that big because there's not that much money in the sport or is there that much money in the sport, but none of these athletes collectively can make their contracts big enough. Agents don't want to get involved because the contracts aren't big enough, but they could make the contracts bigger. How does how do you get
0: anything to change? You raised a really interesting scenario there, because I think when we talk about this in our sport, we often revert to the athlete's circumstances and the cut that they're taking away from their contract to hire an agent. But I think you're spot on. It'd be interesting to do the math on an agent. Like if they sign a $20,000 deal for a trail runner and they get 15 to 20%, okay, maybe that's three grand just to make ends meet, they're going to have to recreate that scenario like 15 more times over the course of the year just to just to scrape by. I'd be curious to know how many hours and emails and meetings go into a single deal. If it only takes like a couple hours for that to to transpire, maybe the three grand is actually it's a screaming deal for them in terms of like the workflow involved. But I think generally you're right. The only caveat that I would say is there may be some scenarios where it is worth it for the agent in the sense that they see a lot of potential in this athlete. And maybe the first contract that they negotiate is super small and they're getting a tiny cut, but they're making a bet that this athlete is going to be in the sport for 10 to 20 years and they're going to be there for the next contract. And maybe, you know, it's a multi six figure deal. And then that 15% becomes like, 30 or 40 grand cut for them. And they've just made a significant portion of their salary in one year. So I think you're generally right. I think that there are some edge cases five to 10% of the time where they it's, it's in their interest to, to take a loss, but bet on the athlete.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's totally true. But how is an agent, how can you be that good at picking out trail running talent? Because as far as I'm concerned, nobody is good at picking out trail running talent right now. Hence random ballers and people just coming out of the woodworks and like being at the top of the world for one year and then retired the next. It's like, how can you as an agent be able to be like, Oh, I'm going to find the next three Courtney DeWalters? Walters. They're all going to come to me and I'm going to find all of them. Now, like, I don't think there's anyone that's that good in the sport. Like that's a huge risk.
0: Yeah, I think it's slightly better chances than the gambling chances that we were just discussing earlier. I think it's similar to venture capital. My understanding there is, you know, even the best investors in companies are wrong like ninety percent of the time, but they are making pretty outsized returns on the one or two bets that work out. So, like, sure, maybe for every Courtney DeWalter and Jim Walmsley, you're you're finding these ten duds that are out of the sport three years later. And- so
1: now you're losing money on those 10 people. And the one person that's successful has to make it all back. Uh, is yeah. there enough money in their contract to do that? And then the other thing too, that we didn't really go into is we're, we're just talking about the time it takes to negotiate one contract. Generally an agent athlete relationship. It's not done after that. No. Like you keep your agent, you you keep them after that because the agent As an agent, I want to help this athlete get into races. I want to make sure that they are going to the races that their sponsor pays out the biggest bonuses for, the ones that I negotiated. So we got to make sure that they get into these races. I want to make sure that they get the right sponsors and partnerships that helps their training because when they race well, I now continue to get paid.
0: I get the sense that the negotiation part of the agent's work is is very small. If I had to bet, I bet they do five to six I bet they're so good at their jobs. They they know exactly what to look for. Five to six hours is what it takes in terms of cumulative meetings and emails and organization of stats and you know marketing plans and stuff, putting that all together. I think you're probably right. I think that what what they're getting in commission, that ends up paying all of the uh counsel that they provide the athlete in the ensuing years and looking out for opportunities and and here's where you should race and here's who you should talk to all that kind of stuff
1: yeah and like with how small a lot of these bonuses are there's just not as many clauses in a trail running a professional trail runners contract than there are in a professional track and field contract in terms of like the amount of bonuses at the end of the year that someone a professional track athlete can have versus a trail runner that number is just a lot bigger for track than trail so as an agent there's just not even as many bonus opportunities to increase that end of the year pay um so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of growing pains right now in our sport with when agents should get involved it'd be really cool i've never heard of this existing but like what if i as an athlete could pay an agent thousand dollars, $2,000 just upfront for like four consulting sessions where they can coach me up on what I'm supposed to say. This is what your contract will look like probably, or like, this is what they look like. This is how much you're probably worth and should advocate for. These are the things you could ask for. Okay. Bye. Good luck.
0: I think that that's a great idea. How is, how is think- uh,
1: a consulting? Yeah. How is uh, agent consults? Not a thing in our sport.
0: I would take it one step further using the sort of the build once, sell twice philosophy. Make a course. Somebody out there, go on whatever it is, uh, Udemy, Masterclass, master and just make a course and put it behind a paywall and make it $100. And I don't think you would just get athletes that buy this course. I think you'd get people that... Uh, just want to learn how to represent themselves in all these areas of life. I think it, I've told a bunch of athletes who are knowledgeable in this area to go make this and they haven't yet. I well, think the athletes, they're not allowed to because the NDA. Or how is. about reti- like, how about like, how about like the Ryan Gelfies, for example, like a retired athlete who has, or an athlete at the end of their career who no longer has all of those shackles. They they and they have institutional knowledge. They could go make the course and make a killing, I think.
1: Yeah, Ryan's gonna lose his mind when he hears this and you just call him retired.
0: <laughs>
1: He's like, I've never retired. Never retired.
0: <laughs> but yeah, um, I agree. I want to sh- share this one thing. So I did I did put out an extremely impossibly scientific Twitter poll earlier today. I oh, I said I said, should pro trail runners have agents so far, and this was at one o'clock. It's it's actually, it's been a hot topic on Twitter, 229 votes so far, 57% say yes, 43% say no. I'm going to read out one comment here because I think it's interesting. This is on the athlete side. Amelia Boone says, quote, completely depends. I worked with one starting out because I had no idea if the contract, a shoe company offered me was fair. Agent was crucial in 5Xing that, but... Now I generally know the landscape and I'm comfortable negotiating terms. So I don't find it as useful. I'd absolutely recommend one for someone starting out, looking to get ahead, even with the 15% cut, you'll likely come out ahead end quote. So that's on the athlete side, which is interesting. So maybe to undo the point I made earlier, agents can't be sure that these quote unquote successful athletes are going to stay with them because once they know how the game is played, they know all the tools. They'll want to leave the athlete. They'll want to leave the agent once once they become profitable. So this is this is crazy. Yeah, but that's probably only up to a point. Like,
1: there's no like Tyreek Hill is not negotiating his own you know 165 million dollar contract. So at what dollar value am I just not even like I'm out? Like, like I why would I put it on me the athlete versus like someone who's a professional at this? to try and lobby for like millions of dollars. Mm. You know, I feel like yeah, there might be a window where it's like you get your agent and then you can do it to Your You can lobby yourself. But then once you get up to a certain dollar amount, I I kind of want that agent back. Like if I'm dealing with multi-million dollar contracts, I do not want to be at that table as an athlete. Like no way. Like absolutely I'm going to have the agent vouching for me. And like, I will just continue to go to do what I do, which is be the athlete. And I will be like, I'm paying you to land this contract for me. This is not my job.
0: And now that I think about it, I think Amelia might also be an outlier because if I understand correctly, I think she is a lawyer in her day-to-day nine to five life. So she probably already has the tools and the legal speak and yeah, that would be familiarity helpful. where... It, she can go into it it's not too much of a, a burden or a hurdle to so to work things out.
1: How how long before I can just ask uh Chat GPT to write up a terms sheet for me to uh send to a
0: to North Face? Under like, six months. Like I think under six like months. My I, name's, bet, I bet I bet you could do it kind of right now. Yeah.
1: Like my name's Brett Hornig. Look up my race results, and I want to try and land a three-year deal with North Face write the term sheet for me.
0: Look at, yeah, look at my race results. Look at my Strava. Once Strava opens up their API, look up my Instagram following my engagement on, mm-hmm. each, on each post, my episodes on single track, determine my market value based on all those factors.
1: Oh man. All the agents here just shit their pants.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Chat GPT. gent. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: You're just, yeah, robo, robo agents.
0: All right. I got a long comment here, switching topics. There was a tweet from my absolute favorite follow on Twitter, the one and only track and field legend turned businessman, entrepreneur, Michael Johnson. He put out a great tweet. I'm going to summarize it in a second, but I do want to say one thing because we've been talking a lot about track and field this episode and you and I both love track and field. So no apologies needed, but One of the things I love about that sport right now and the media people in it and the operators in it, they are on a mission to improve the pro part of the sport and to grow fans. And I want to see more of that in our sport. And I get the sense, and this is purely just from like Twitter and a little bit on social media, but I get the sense that in our community, the operators are, are quite divided. They're quite fractured and there's this not insignificant camp of folks that don't want to study other sports or other media or other businesses out there to get inspired on how to improve our side of things. They kind of want to stay in house and, and be provincial about it. So, which I think is a shame because I think, I think we got to keep moving forward and study things. But anyways, the great Michael Johnson had a tweet the other day, spelling out his vision for what a revamped pro track and field would look like. And to summarize first, he says, let the federations out there, let them focus on governance, let them focus on the nation and world championships Don't mess with that, but there needs to be a pro league. And for that, a private sector organization with sports marketing, business savvy has to build it. First two orders of business for this private sector group are to one, uh, build a quality product, which we can debate here in a second. And then two, build fans off that. And once you nail those two things, all the media rights stuff, all the sponsor dollars follow. And I think one cool thing about that, by the way, when we think about the relationship that athletes have with brands. This scenario, he suggests it would decouple them from that because they're now making revenue from the league as opposed to having to be totally dependent on sponsors for their money. So anyways, his solution is fewer competitions and competitions that are televised at the start lines are the best of the best athletes, plus a little bit of like the, just the popular athletes that might not be the best, but they're in that arena, uh, modified fast paced, quick action summary of the event. Um, and then in terms of the commentary, a balance between the competition itself, the season long narrative, of the league storytelling of the athlete experience, and then a niche focus. And he says that by contrast, and I'll finish up here in a second track and field. And I think you could say the same about trail running. We've had this long time issue with diluting competition, having too much of a variety of events, slow action, multiple competing narratives, and this last part, which I think is interesting, infatuation with times and records. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I know I said a lot there, went off on a huge tangent, but take any part of that. What's your reaction? What like, did you immediately grapple onto and think like, that's interesting. I want to talk about that more. So one of the interesting spots that
1: I feel we as a trail industry don't have to worry about as much or yet is the building of the storylines across multiple events. Because in a track meet, you have like the 100, 200, 400, 800, 1500, 5K, 110 hurdles, 400 hurdles, long jump, triple jump, shot put, discus, javelin, relays, steeplechase. Every single one of those races has eight or more people in it. And you get X number of minutes before each race to hype it up, like in a track and field broadcast you just, you have, there's no time for storytelling. Um, if there was a way where there were lots of track meets and they were all on different days, but each of the meet only had like four events or like, say it was, you know, a a track meet, like a world-class track meet of 100 meter dash where there was five men's heats of the 105 women's heats. And they progressively got more competitive and, I guess the the picture that I'm building in my head is like similar to how they do a title fight in like boxing or UFC. You know, there might there's going to be like 5 or 6 fights that night and they all progressively get better leading up to the main one and they have like huge intros, you know, big movie made of like their training montage leading up to it, you know, building that story and then finally you have the race. Um, we don't have that much of a problem with that in trail running because most of the, you know, races that we go to, it's one contested distance, you know, um, like there's occasionally like the distance overlap, like at Lake Sonoma, there was a marathon and a 50 mile going on in the same day, but. The marquee race was the 50 mile. There wasn't 12 different events, you know, UTMB week, they spread crowd. they spread all the races across a week. You know, they make sure that there's more or less one race going on at a time. Um, That's an interesting problem in track and field. And I just don't know how you get around the day of coverage because they try and make someone a fan of someone four minutes before the race goes off the people watching should already be fans of these people. Like there needs to be kind of like what we were saying earlier with UTMB and outside may like there needs to be the stories and the like freaking movies, like documentaries built up all the way to the race. Like if there was a 10 part series following a whole bunch of different athletes leading up to UTMB um, we see this in the triathlon world. Um, of like very in-depth training videos, um, high cinema value. I think that's where a lot of the value is to make these track meets or trail races more exciting. I don't know if it has that much to do with the actual production on the day of, there's just not a lot of reason for people to be excited for the races. Like the only people that are excited for the races are always excited for races, but like, we need, i think we just need more storytelling beforehand and you know track and field they have they're they're pigeonholed by NBC and ESPN they don't have time slots to do that um outside meg has a massive platform to do that freaking watch.outside.com or whatever it is <laughs> they could potentially make these massive docu series leading up to all these races and then they could make a massive movie at the end of the year and it could be awesome Like I'm thinking drive to survive again as well, like on the F1 circuit, but like that, that's what I want to see. That's what came to mind when I read
0: Michael Johnson's tweet. One thing I want to challenge on there. You're, I think you're spot on that. We don't have contested events. Like there's not typically multiple events happening on the same day by Like, you know, with like Sonoma, like Lake Sonoma, that's sort of an exception where you have the marathon and the 50 mile going on at the same time. We don't, typically grapple with that on the elite side of things but i do think we grapple with the issue where there are multiple events on or near the same weekend so for example in Mm -hmm. late august you have utmb leadville and run rabbit run competing for elite athletes i mean here this coming weekend through the end of early may you've got istria Transvolcania, and madeira competing canyons and and canyons and Uh, we just had lake sonoma and a world's qualifier, yeah. uh, all all competing for spots. So, there, I do think there is a severe dilution issue here on, on the pro side of the sport, and that hurts uh, the fan creation side of things. I think. Do you think there's a scenario
1: where there can be this many races, and you know, in a couple of years, there's just ten times more elites to fill the fields? Like right now it seems diluted because it's like there's Madeira, there's Sonoma, there's Canyons, there's Transville County. But what if there was fifty elite men, fifty elite women at every single one of these races where like, you know, in five years, every single one of those races is more stacked than it's ever been, just because there's more people trying to make it in trail. And then maybe maybe then that does make for that once every to once every four year world championship to be the ultimate stacked race. Like, what if we can create our own tiny trail Olympics and all we need is just more people in the sport, which is just not
0: quite there yet. So, I guess that it makes me ask this question from a fan building, fan engagement standpoint, is it sufficient for these events? on their own to just have good racing happening? Like, does that in a, in and of itself draw fans? Or in addition to the good racing piece, does there need to be this overarching context and meaning for why the athletes are there at that start line that makes sense in the broader context of the sport?
1: Right now, I think it's that.
0: Because all the most competitive races are
1: qualifiers. Like, all the most competitive races, they're like golden tickets for Western states. Or or qualifiers for UTMB and then you have like Western States and UTMB, um, like Havelina's gotten super competitive because it's a golden ticket race. Now, you know, Black Canyon, Canyons, Lake Sonoma was super competitive because it qualified you for worlds. Like all these qualifier races are very competitive. Like we saw what happened to Lake Sonoma when it wasn't, when it qualified you for nothing, the competition of it went down. And then we saw what happened, you know, when, you know, these races became qualifiers, uh, the competition for them went up. There's a few that seem to be like, uh, ultra trail Cape town is one. Um, the late and great North face 50 mile was another like one off race. That was just seen as kind of a quote unquote championship. Um, I've always liked the qualifier and then championship type race, but I think there's room though for a handful of very competitive invitationals. Basically. Like if we're going to like, like when I was racing cross country in college, there was a league preview meet, which basically was a preview of our league championships. Then there was our like actual league championships. And then, nationals scattered throughout all those races were just one-off invitationals where you know they were essentially just tune-up races or we went to them to see where we stacked up against people not in our conference but you know they had actually nothing to do with our you know getting to nationals or anything like that that's i mean that's like the model that i've always seen that's how i've like tried to interpret what trail is like currently, like I see that model within trail. Like there's all these qualifier races for like some of the, what we call championships. And then there's a handful of other, just like one-off invitationals. Um, but those like one-off invitationals, they need to be doing things differently to attract competition to make the race. Cause like there needs to be more reason for
0: them to go. This is a slight tangent. I know that one of the holes in the argument that I'm about to make with like a, a a true ultra running season is that just due to the abusive nature of the sport, even the best athletes, they can only reliably race like three or four times a year and get their best results. Even if we can't get all the same athletes to the same events, I do believe if we adopted a true team based environment, we could get the same teams. And I think that that's a good enough proxy for fans. What do you, what do you think about that idea where you're, you're taking on like the best parts of collegiate track teams, you're bringing them to an ultra running, trail running space. They are co-located. So, so by the, I'll say one more thing. I don't mean brand teams. Those, I know this is kind of a hot take. I think they're fake. I'm totally done pretending that like Solomon has a team, Adidas has a team. I mean like co-located, training together, racing, not just to sell more shoes, but like for a leaderboard, for an end of the year championship do you think that could be a good enough proxy in your opinion for fans? If we can't get the same athletes racing, at least someone representing the team is going to be there racing for something meaningful.
1: Yeah, so I agree and I disagree with various parts. I agree that like especially Americans, Americans love team sports. And like 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 the Red Sox are always going to outlive any single player on that team. Like like I will be an A's fan even when people retire, like when the team is completely different in 10 years than it was 10 years ago, still going to be a fan of that team.
0: You're one of like 5,000 athletics fans. I know
1: I've seen the stadiums when I go to the game, <laughs> like I can sit anywhere I want. Um, but I guess my point is like, that's the importance in team competition. And it gives bigger reason to like, then we could have a team competition at say UTMB like if and this okay so this is where i disagree i don't think they need to be co-located teams i think a lot of the sponsored teams are fake but i think there are some that are trying not to be they're trying i agree I see, that they're trying i see a push now more than ever to try and have a little bit more team cohesiveness than before um because i just i just don't know i just don't know how a co-located team successfully works because i feel like everyone's going to end up living in the same town like ultimately it's all going to end up like right like flagstaff is where all the track people train like all the teams just train in flag like how cuz yeah. now there's there's no advantage disadvantage to training in santa fe or park city They just are like, we're all in flag now. So you have these co-located trail teams and like, I'm on the team in Ashland, but then it's just like, well, damn, every summer Finn gets to go be at Silverton. And like, I'm stuck here at at 2000 feet. Like, I want to be able to move around. So it's like, what if I just happened to live like Bowerman Track Club when they were up in Portland, they technically were based out of Portland, but they spent almost no time of the year there because they would just go from one training camp to training camp. Are they a co-located team based in Portland?
0: Yes. I in that, I actually do say yes there. It, it, honestly, if the entire, let's just call it for the sake of a term, let's just say, let's just yeah. call it major league ultra running. Let's say yeah. that there's a team for all of these major trail meccas. But at the end of the day, if you un- uncover the hood, every single one of those teams has an apartment complex in Flagstaff and they're all running the same trails. I'm okay Is with that, that. That's cool. Cause that happens yeah. in pro cycling, like the American,
1: like team EF. Half of their team, well, they—I mean, not their whole team, but like, you know, the team that's been selected for the Tour de France—they're just going to be over in Europe all summer, training and racing. Uh, Yep. If if that's uh, if that's okay for this major league ultra running, uh, then I'm all I'm all for that because I would love for one fans to be able to be fans of a team, um, you know, rep their gear and stuff like i think that's awesome and that's i that's something that the entire sport of running lacks even the track clubs like bowerman i, I just don't see that many people wearing bowerman track club stuff um organ track clubs like the closest one that i'm like see with that kind of growth is the on athletic club like well cuz there's fans
0: Fans don't want to affiliate with something whose purpose is to sell a product that like they can't get behind that. They can get behind this journey of winning a league or winning a championship. And especially if it's tied to their local geography, all the more reason to get invested. But like, it's no surprise in my opinion that nobody can get behind, you know, the Hoka trail team because their mission is to sell more shoes. Like it's great if Adam Peterman wins Western States, but that just further serves the mission of selling shoes. So this idea, I think of brands being the driving force behind teams is silly. Like,
1: like, like if there was a Hoka NAZ elite ultra team,
0: that's different. That's, that's a really good counterpoint. Cause then I, think, I could,
1: I would wear my like NAZ elite ultra. I mean, that's a terrible name. I'm not going to buy that, but if there was an equivalent, cool name, of NAZ Elite Ultra Division. Yep. And it's Hoka branded because Hoka's supporting that team, I would buy that.
0: Yep. yep. But like I would H- too. Hoka
1: doesn't have that. And right now it's just you're buying a Hoka shirt. But like that's not supporting a team. That's just supporting a brand. So like that's why it's like that doesn't exist. Um like on Athletic Club, I think does actually have some on athletic club branded gear, just like how Bowerman has Bowerman branded gear. But There's no, um, the team aspect of that sort of competition doesn't exist in track and field. So there's just not that much incentive there. If, like, and that's because at world championships and stuff, it's all about Team USA and getting medals for your country. But it's something like UTMB, you know, going way back to Danny Moreno's Battle of the Brands, we get to low key, that gets created at like a private championship like UTMB, because we could be like, oh, there are, The top, I mean, shit, OCC, CCC, UTMB, there's the top two men and women from each brand in this race, and they all go towards a collective team points total, whether that's a total time or some sort of points. I am now heavily invested in someone, some team, because I want them to win
0: now. Covered good ground in this episode. Dude, we did love that. We went deep on track and field. Any other, any things we missed, anything else you want to cover before we sign off?
1: I'm curious just of all the rambling that we did on this one. I I think we, I think we stayed in a pretty good lane for the most part, like of this whole episode. I just want to know what some thoughts people have had across this. Like, what do we, what is there any, is there really any town in the world better than Quito Ecuador for (laughs) training for ultras? Or is that, is that number one?
0: I think I'm going to do some Google keyword searches tonight. I'm going to do like Keto Ecuador, trail running camp, Keto Ecuador, by UTMB, Keto Ecuador. I mean, let's see some Strava Airbnbs. segments. Yeah, let's, let's
1: see, see some, some Strava, Strava yeah. segments. Yeah. Finn, maybe we should just move to Quito and just do all this stuff from Ecuador.